the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are back to our conversation and Samuel Williamson, our guest today, his new book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Now, Samuel, God being God, he can choose to communicate by any means he desires. We'll recall a time when he chose to communicate through a burning bush as uh, Moses had the experience. Uh, we, We know that he could open up the heavens with a thunderous voice. But instead, for the most part, for most believers, um, rather than the loud, thundering voice that we would know as it shook us to our very core that it was clearly the voice of God, instead God chooses to speak in that, that still small voice, as Scripture tells us. Why is that? Is that, is that it's got to be pr- God is a very purposeful God. There's got to be a reason behind that. I, I think there's two reasons, Craig, and... I think the first is, we're all familiar with the passage in First Kings, I think it's 19, but it might be 20, where God speaks to Elijah out of a still small voice. But the background of that is, Elijah has just been involved in one of the greatest miracles God does in the Old Testament. You know, there's this big contest between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah. And Elijah builds this, you know, he puts, he puts together an altar and he puts together the wood on it, he puts a sacrifice on it, and God sends a fiery bolt down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice and the wood and the water and the stones and even the earth, and nobody changes. I mean, Elijah is expecting the people to rise up against Ahab and Jezebel. You know, if not rise up, at least he's expecting some, some protesters out front saying, we want the Lord, you know, we want the Lord, but nothing happens. And, and Elijah becomes terribly depressed, and he goes down to Mount Sinai. And that's where, it's very interesting, God says, an earthquake came by, but there was no, but God was not in the earthquake. A whirlwind came by, and God was not in the earthquake, in the whirlwind. And a fire came by, and God was not in the fire. And the thing that's so funny is that when God spoke to Moses, he spoke out of the fiery bush. So we spoke out of fire. When God spoke on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, he spoke out of an earthquake. And when God spoke to Job, he did speak out of a whirlwind. So it's not that God doesn't speak in those things. But I think the deliberate contrast with this huge, spectacular miracle and not changing people's hearts is part of God's point when he finally says, and then God spoke in a still, small voice. I don't think the spectacular changes us, Craig. I mean... I wish I could say if I had something spectacular would change me, but I really think it's the still, small, quiet, conversational voice of God every day that changes my heart. And, and I would think the big miracles do, but, you know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles, and the Pharisees didn't change their minds. And, and so I, I really do think God is saying there, there's a part of us humans, maybe us humans in the Western world especially, there's a part of us that wants the spectacular and the miraculous. And I believe in the spectacular and miraculous. Please don't misunderstand me. 
But I think the thing that changes my heart is when I sit in my chair and I hear God say, you know, Sam, I think you were ignoring your wife. I think you should go repent to her. And it's a quiet, calm voice that has a steady assurance in his voice. And so I think God really, I think God has an, has an invitation. So my first reason that God speaks out of the still small voice instead of the spectacular is I think that's the way humans work. I would say the second reason is I think God likes us to seek him. And sometimes when we speak, seek the spectacular, we're, we're hoping for an emotional experience more than just to be touched by the hand and the heart and the tongue of God. So he wants us to seek him. I'm sorry for that long answer, Greg. I really appreciate your kindness. No, it, it's an appropriate answer, and I think it also puts things in perspective, and that is to recognize, too, that we serve a holy and righteous God. Amen. Um, Amen. That, I'm really serious. That 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 sense of, and I think we've 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 lost this in in the modern day world. That that sense of, uh, for example, what it meant to be a priest to enter into the holy of holies, right, right. and that tremendous sense of of respect and reverence to realize that the priest was entering into the very presence of God. Uh, people forget that so much so. Um, and, and Catholics listening will appreciate this. Um, a bell is rung uh, during the consecration of the host uh, during Mass. And um, a bell was also um, uh, part of uh, what happened during the, the sacrifice that would take place inside of the Holy of Holies. And a rope was tied around the ankle of the priest. Absolutely. Should, should the priest be found with sin and God strike him dead as being unfit to be in his presence and to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could literally pull the priest out. Because if they went in there, they would be struck. Exactly right. So I think we've <laughs> lost that sense of, of, of awe in the presence of God and in realizing that God doesn't have to raise his voice to us. He is God. Well, and you know, the one time that God did handwriting on the wall, you know, we all talk about it, just about handwriting on the wall. The one time God wrote on the wall, the message basically was, King Belshazzar, you're going to die tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can live without handwriting on the wall tonight. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're right. And the other notion here, too, and I learned this years ago in, in debate, um, we have a tendency, human beings, uh, we saw this uh, just last night. You'll probably see it again on Sunday during the debates. As we're trying to, out of frustration, get our point across, we tend to think if we raise our voices, you'll hear us. Yeah, right. And yet, exactly. I learned many, many years ago that if you really want to get the most important point across, don't raise your voice. Instead, lower your voice, and people will lean in and pay more attention. And I think perhaps God is using the same principle with us. He wants us to pay attention, to recognize who he is in the splendor and glory of all of his grace and righteousness and holiness, and realize that he does care. And not only does he care, not only does he want to hear from us, but he also wants us to hear from him as we engage in that that dialogue or that conversation, uh, as you call it in the title of the book, Samuel, so that in and through that, uh, we can not only recognize his voice, 
but also walk in a deeper level of fellowship and pure relationship with Tim that perhaps a lot of us have never never taken it to that level, never really experienced. I agree with you completely. I, I, you know, Christianity is about relationship. And, and relationship, the heart and soul relationship is really the normal life. It's, it's not, the spectacular is great. You know, don't, don't deny me any of the spectacular. But the heart and soul of a relationship is just the normal, everyday, faithful talking and being together. And, and really, that's what makes life rich. And I think that's what God is inviting us into. I, I believe God wants us to hear his voice every day. Almost every day. There's, there's times where he might be silent because he can't tell us something. But I, I really believe that God has something for us. And that, as, as you're talking about, he wants, uh, he wants us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. Because the, the temple curtain was torn. That's right. So that we can enter back into a relationship with him that, that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, we can probably talk to a lot of wives out there who would say their husbands never learn to listen, and perhaps vice versa. Uh, God, I think... Please don't call my wife. (laughs) She's online, too, you say? I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I I think, though, that that we can also uh, learn a lot from that. That, that God perhaps would observe that we've never learned to listen to him. We talk a lot about wanting to hear from God, but do we really want to hear from God? Do we want to not only be vulnerable at that level, but take the time to walk in the fellowship and to have the kind of, of intimacy with God that he really wants not only of us, but for us? It's a compelling read and can be a life-changing one for you. Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Newly published by Kriegel Publishers. You'll find it available available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and at Samuel's website, beliefsoftheheart.com. That's beliefsoftheheart.com. And our thanks to Samuel Williamson for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you think about building a structure, you're going to put up a house, an apartment complex. What do you need? Well, you need some important elements. First, you need the earth below it capable of supporting the weight of the building. So you don't want to have it on shifting sand. It's probably not good to have it on the edge of a cliff, right? Then you need to have upon that earth footings or a foundation that is capable of supporting the weight of the structure of the building, upon which then on that foundation goes the frame. Inside the frame goes things like plumbing and electrical, water, sewer, the like. On top of the frame go the walls to provide warmth and coolness, a roof over top to provide protection for the elements. Then in the interior, you want things like carpeting, heating, air conditioning to make the home comfortable. And then things like a kitchen to prepare meals, a bath, sleeping quarters, living quarters to make it habitable. But if you think about it, In all that entire process of going from no structure to a completed structure capable of supporting habitability or life, it all starts with one thing, a plan. Blueprints. My guest tonight, I think, would suggest that as we look at the amazing structure that we call home, called planet Earth, inside our galaxy, traveling about here in this amazing Milky Way, That in order for us to arrive at a place of habitability on planet Earth, there had to be a plan. 
The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Joining us today is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author who mentioned quite a number of number one bestsellers to his name. We're pleased to have join us today Dr. Hugh Ross. And Dr. Ross, always a delight and an education to have you with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You know, we think about habitability, and, and uh, I, I think the example is you cite inside the pages of Improbable Planet that the the correlation between the capacity of, of creating a structure that allows us to put up a building and finally arrive at a place where we can have it and enjoy it, provide it uh, its serviceable use to us, uh, is very much uh, equal to equating life's sustainability features of Earth, aren't they? Well, they are, and what the book documents is the amount of design and fine-tuning you need, not just for life, but for plants and animals, and not just for plants and animals, but for human beings, and especially for human beings, where billions of us can live on the planet at one time and develop a technology where we can hear and respond to the redemptive message, the real reason why the Creator created the universe. And what we see is that the level of design goes up exponentially with each step. And so it actually begins with a Bible study I did where I noted that every creation text links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption and how the Bible states that God actually uh, starts his works of redemption before he creates anything. That would imply that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. And that launched a three-year study on my part through the scientific literature to put that to the test. And indeed, that's what came out, is that literally every component of the universe, of Earth, of Earth's life, and every event in the history of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, plays a critical role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short window of time. And, of course, not only playing a critical role, but it, it gives um, every every step, every aspect, just as I suggested with the, what you would need to create a structure that would be habitable for us to enjoy, uh, for, for livability. Uh, the same thing is true of planet Earth, that this is not just all coming together by accident. You speak of um, some of the features of planet Earth, for example, that are Necessary. They're essential to human life. Things like uh, the geographical, the chemical, atmospheric, biological, astronomical features of this planet that make it not only unique, but as you suggest in the book, um, going from simply the ability to sustain complex life to even having a reason why it's capable of sustaining that life. Yeah, I'll give you one example. I mean, for billions of humans to live on the planet at one time, we have to be living in an ice age cycle where the planet cycles between 10% ice coverage and 23% ice coverage, where the period of the cycle is 100,000 years. And this is the only time in Earth's history where we've had such a cycle. Moreover, to have billions of people develop technology, we have to be living in the warm interglacial period, which is 10% ice coverage, that follows the most severe ice age in the entire ice age cycle. And you've probably heard of things like climate warming and climate stability. What I document in the book is that we're living in a unique time window in the entire history of the Earth. The past 9,000 years, we've seen extreme climate stability at the optimal temperature for human civilization. Why? Because seven cycles and the variation of Earth's orbit and a rotation axis all came together to open up this unique time window. 
We've been in 9,000 years. At most, we can sustain it for another 1,000. And so God is giving us this brief time window in which we can take the redemptive message to all the people and groups of the world and have them respond. And from a biblical perspective, this universe is a pathway to a far better universe. Dr. Yoon Ross, our guest today, a look at his new book, Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. The new book, by the way, just published by Baker Books. And uh, yeah, you're thinking about gift giving perhaps already. Um, Thanksgiving's just a couple of weeks away. Before you know that, soon after, of course, it'll be Christmas time. And uh, a book like this can not only be great for any skeptic, but anyone who wants to understand sort of the deeper story from the scientific reasoning uh, behind not only how things came to be, how man came to be, but most importantly, some of the reasons why. We'll get to more of those reasons why as our conversation with Dr. Hugh Ross continues and our look at Improbable Planet. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation continues with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Dr. Ross, in some respects, is this book sort of the sequel to um, your previous book that, that opens up the subject matter of why the universe is the way it is? Yeah, to some degree it is. I mean, that book was basically targeting how God designed the universe to eliminate evil and suffering. This book goes on to talk about how God designed the earth and all of its life so we can understand and respond to uh, his purpose for creating, namely to redeem us into a new creation, a new realm beyond this one. There are others out there, um, I think of the Carl Sagans of the world, that would suggest as we look at the layers of complexity that we're going to have you go into this evening, that all of this in relationship to Earth's capacity to support life is just simply an amazing coincidence. What of that notion? Well, often they're not looking at uh, the number of coincidences. Yeah, you could say maybe four or five of them are just coincidental, but when it adds up to hundreds and even thousands, and that's what this book documents, thousands of different aspects of the history and the components have to be fine-tuned to make possible the existence of billions of human beings on the Earth. A few, maybe. Thousands, no. It's, it's clear evidence that God is controlling things. In fact, they argue, and I said this in front of scientific audiences, if we actually look at science from a redemptive perspective, we have a more efficient tool for rapidly advancing scientific progress. I mean, if indeed everything that we see in creation is for the purpose of redemption, that should give us a tool for discovery. And the book basically documents the success of that approach to science. And, of course, what's critical about uh, this research that you've done is not only do you demonstrate that there are thousands of factors involved uh, that need to be in place, but also the, the tight measurements, um, the, the tight confines to which um, something can swing from being compatible and habitable to suddenly inhabitable. I mean, for example, uh, we have temperatures across Earth, some of the highest temperatures in, in the deserts that reach 115, 120 degrees. I suppose if we saw that ratchet up by 10 or 15 more degrees and saw that take place in more places across the planet, suddenly planet Earth goes from being habitable to inhabitable pretty quickly. And a lot of that has to do with just simple things like the, the, the tilt of the Earth, doesn't it? Well, it does, and there's a chapter in the book, Chapter 7, where I talk about habitable zones. Because you've probably heard that a number of my fellow astronomers 
will say, well, there's 40 billion planets in, our, in the habitable zone or Milky Way galaxy alone. But all they're looking at is water habitability. Today we know of nine distinct habitable zones. So, for example, in addition to the water habitable zone, you got the ultraviolet habitable zone, the astrophere habitable zone, uh, the atmospheric electric field habitable zone. Now, we do know of 3,600 planets outside of our solar system, but of all the planets we discovered, there's only one planet that resides in all nine habitable zones, and that's the one you and I are sitting on. And unless it resides simultaneously in all nine habitable zones, the planet is not habitable. So they're really being unfair then. It's almost as if they're picking and choosing when they suggest, uh, based on some of these calculations, that there could be up to 40 billion possible habitable planets uh, in the Milky Way galaxy. But it doesn't take into consideration all of these factors suggesting that the notion that Earth can have a life-supporting twin is probably unlikely? That's right. They're picking the most generous zone and ignoring the ones that are the most restrictive. I mean, water is the third most abundant molecule in the universe. The universe is really wet. So the fact that we find water in a lot of places is no big surprise, but there's eight other factors that need to be taken into account. Moreover, the structure of the planets. You know, we have eight planets in our solar system. It was actually born with ten. And unless those ten are all fine-tuned exactly the way they were or are, you cannot have advanced life on planet Earth. Of course, what's fascinating about this, as I suggested in the opening remarks, that as you make in the book, the comparison between uh, the building of a habitable planet to the building of a habitable building, that uh, in both cases it starts with having the essential construction materials at hand. Even the balance of that is very unique to planet Earth, is it not? It is. There's a chapter in the book on dirt where I basically encourage people, don't take dirt for granted. Our planet has got the only dirt that allows you to grow uh, food grains. I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw that movie about the Martian that showed Matt Damon growing potatoes on Mars. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Well, the soil of Mars has got 60 times as much sulfur as Earth does. You're not going to be able to grow anything on Mars unless you bring soil from planet Earth. Fascinating. And, of course, with that idea, not only is it essential that you have the right construction materials, but there's another factor here, uh, and that is anybody that's going to build a building, let's say it's for, uh, uh, you know, uh, living purposes, you want to make sure it's in the right neighborhood. Nobody's going to put up a beautiful uh, three- or four-bedroom home with a swimming pool and put it right in the middle of an industrial park that's surrounded by nothing but uh, light industry and large warehouses. And I guess the same thing is equally true, in a sense, in relationship to not just that we exist, but where Earth is situated in relationship to, uh, what should we call it, the rest of our our neighborhood here in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, in order for advanced light to be possible, our solar system must be born in the most dangerous part of our Milky Way galaxy, relatively close to the center of the galaxy. That's so we can get enriched with sufficient heavy elements from exploding stars. But it's essential we get kicked out right after we get enriched. And we see about our sun as it got kicked out from the most dangerous place in our Milky Way galaxy and situated in the safest place in our Milky Way galaxy. And that happens to be the only place in our Milky Way galaxy where we astronomers can observe the entirety of the universe and directly witness the cosmic creation event. So God not only put us in the best possible place uh, for civilization, he also put us in the best possible place 
to make scientific discoveries. And there's also something that I learned fascinating inside the pages of your new book, Improbable Planet, and that is this notion that as much as suggesting that there is up to 40 billion possible habitable planets that discounts a lot of critical factors, then, too, isn't it true that this notion that uh, there are other galaxies that could support life, for example, you make an A-B comparison between the characteristics of the Milky Way galaxy versus the Andromeda galaxy. Tell us about what some of those critical distinctions are. Well, often we look at the Andromeda galaxy and call it a sister galaxy because of how much it looks like the Milky Way. But when you look at its spiral arm structure, it's warped and it's distorted. Why? Because it suffered a collision from a fairly big dwarf galaxy just a half billion years ago. And the warping and the distortion is such that it eliminates the possibility of advanced life in that galaxy. And there's actually 200 different features of our Milky Way galaxy that must be exquisitely fine-tuned for advanced life to be possible. You, know, you have to have a spiral arm structure. The spiral arms have to be extremely symmetrical, and they have to have the right space between the spiral arms. The galaxy's got to be the right mass. It needs to have a high ratio of dark matter uh, to ordinary matter in it, and it's got to be relatively free of spurs and feathers between the arms. And we have studied thousands of other spiral galaxies. Ours is the only one that meets the characteristics that advanced life needs. And if you take a look at those two differences, if, if the characteristics that you observe of the Andromeda galaxy were present in the Milky Way galaxy, that would then suggest that life could not be sustainable on planet Earth inside the Milky Way? You might build a bacteria that could exist for a few months, but you wouldn't have plants, animals, and you certainly wouldn't have human beings. It just becomes that uh, hostile, in other words, to the it's ability of sustaining hostile. life. Everywhere we look in the universe, we see hostility for advanced life except in our planet Earth. And, you know, after a while, you look at this, and as much as nobody looks at a fantastic building, you look at the Pyramid uh, Transamerica building in downtown San Francisco, you take a look at the Sears Tower in Chicago, look at the uh, Empire State Building in New York City, and you, you've got to think to yourself, that took forethought, that took engineering ability, that took planning, that took science, that took not only... Uh, a sense of vision, but also a sense of the end game, a sense of what the purpose would be. And as we're learning today from Dr. Hugh Ross, there's more than just planning behind the presence of life on Earth, but in fact, purpose, too. We'll talk a bit about that as well and when we continue with our conversation. The new book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly published by Baker Books, available through the usual suspects. Get it online at Amazon.com. You can also order it directly through Reasons to Believe simply by going to Reasons.org. That's Reasons.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're learning today, even when somebody like Carl Sagan suggests that millions of life planets must exist, um, suggesting that there is nothing unusual or extraordinary about planet Earth, Dr. Hugh Ross is proving the contrary to be true, that there are complexities about this planet that make life here possible that with uh, just a variety of changes here and there would suddenly make its sustainability impossible. Toward that end, you also talk in the book 
as you sort of lead to this uh, logical conclusion, Dr. Ross, that if Earth is capable of sustaining physical life, as it's demonstrated down through its history, um, we have certainly have seen also then the ability of it to sustain physical life along with mind-possessing life. But you take it a step further. You suggest that not only can the planet sustain physical life and mind-possessing life, but also spiritual life. Tell me more about that. Yes. I mean, uh, the, the whole purpose for God creating is to bring about a redemptive relationship between him and the human species. And we're told in the Bible that he intends to bring a countless number into that relationship. And the Greeks could count up to a billion, so he's talking billions. So that implies that the earth must be designed in such a way to support billions of people at one time. And that only began to happen 9,000 years ago. Only for the past 9,000 years has uh, that been possible. And we also notice that uh, he salted the earth uh, with all the resources we need to make possible the technology we need to take the good news of redemption to all the people groups of the world. Everything is targeting purpose. I would argue that the earth and its inhabitants, all of its life, all of its history, screams that there's purpose for humanity and actually targets us to exactly what that purpose is. And so I'm amazed at all the new scientific discoveries of the past two years. I mean, one thing we discovered is that uh, in order for plate tectonics to start and be sustained, you need life to be created at the same time and to be sustained throughout that time. Life requires plate tectonics, plate tectonics requires life, and all that plate tectonics and life is necessary to provide us with the resources so that billions of human beings can hear and respond to the redemptive message. Is this eventually going to force those that come at this purely from a scientific standpoint and wish to go no further, um, that as we look at the progression of well, the laws of physics and their impact on planet Earth, natural selection, its impact, ultimately coming to the slow realization that for there to be laws, for there to be natural selection, there must be a source for all of that? Well, I think so. I mean, I was at a conference once where atheist scientists were speaking, and they all insisted that there was no God, but they also insisted that we human beings have purpose. We got value. Uh, we have some kind of eternal destiny. And it's like none of that makes sense if there is no God. But if God designed this universe uh, so that we did have purpose and ultimate destiny, then it all makes sense. But what that revealed to me is that we human beings, no matter how hard we try, cannot deny that within us we have purpose, we have meaning, we have value. It's written upon our hearts. I mean, it tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I find that even committed atheists have a very difficult time denying that. Yes, yeah, some, um, some of the remarks made by even um, Richard Dawkins over the last year or two are beginning to suggest that there's a bit of thawing, <laughs> even of his position. Yes. Well, I mean, what I admire about Richard Dawkins, he says, science can test religious ideas. I agree with him on that. And I'm eager to try to use science as a tool to test competing religious ideas. Part of the science also um, beginning to put some holes into Charles Darwin's theory, and I asked that question because Darwin, of course, always held that there was a presumption of development and transformation of development of life on the planet that was slow, it was smooth, it was gradual, it was contiguous, but you argue in the book that that just simply isn't so. 
Well, I do. In uh, Chapter 12, I talk about what's called the faint sun paradox, how the sun today is 20 to 25 percent brighter than it was when God first created life. But light can only tolerate about a 2 percent change in the solar brightness. And we notice is that uh, we see in these mass extinction and mass speciation events that life is wholesale removed from planet Earth and shortly thereafter replaced with completely different species of life. But we notice about those replacements, they're more efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as the sun gets progressively brighter and brighter, the greenhouse effect of Earth's atmosphere becomes progressively weaker and weaker, keeping the temperature on the surface of the Earth ideal for life. But my point is this, only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun and the Earth will know which life to remove and with new life to replace that, remove life with. And it's actually stated that way in uh, Psalm uh, 104, that it's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. If he's not constantly removing life and replacing that life, then quickly the sun's luminosity makes it impossible for any life to be sustained for the rest of the history of the earth. So it's a classic example if we integrate across the scientific disciplines, that's where we see that the holes in the Darwinian paradigm are not just in one discipline, they're in all the disciplines. And, and fascinating, even as we make that comparison to something as simple as a seed falling to the earth and dying and then giving forth life, that even right. in the most simplicity um, of, of creation, it's there. Well, one thing I talk about in the book is that the grains that are crucial for feeding our planet they only existed in the very recent history of Earth. It literally took billions of years of preparation of previous life forms to make possible the existence of rice and wheat and oats and millet. And without that, we couldn't feed our population. So if we string all of this together, Earth providing essential construction materials situated in the right neighborhood, the uniqueness of our solar system, all of this is sort of builds layer upon layer. Um, we begin to slowly draw the conclusion that all of this has to come together with a plan, and if a plan, there must be a architect, there must be a planner, and as you suggest at the conclusion of the book, ultimately that leads us back to the notion that God himself planned and prepared Earth as our home. He did, and he particularly targeted us human beings not just a God creating a home for life. He wanted a home where there'd be sentient beings that could come into a relationship with him. All of it exists for us human beings. Ultimately, what would you conclude is, is your intent in terms of the, the takeaway um, for readers that look at this book, either because they're trying to understand more from a scientific viewpoint or see the deeper correlation between uh, the creator and the creation. What's the big takeaway in, in, in the way you've approached writing this book? Well, the universe has to be exactly the size that it is. Every star, every planet, every comet, uh, every bacterium, every life form, every event in history, the universe and the Earth and Earth's light has to be exactly the way it is for us human beings uh, to exist and to develop the kind of civilization we need to discover God and come into relationship with Him. The takeaway I hope people will realize is that we human beings are incredibly valuable in the sight of the Creator and that He has a purpose uh, for us. He wants us to discover that purpose 
So I end the book by basically challenging people where there's a purpose for humanity in general, but God has designed a special purpose for every individual human being. The purpose he has for me is different from all the other 7.5 billion people on the earth. I need to find what that purpose is and fulfill it in the few decades that God has me here in this creation. And, of course, what's so wonderful about the conclusions that we can draw at the end of Improbable Planet is that this um, spinning sphere upon which we call home is far too complex, too detailed, and too involved to simply have happened by accident. And if created, then therefore a creator. If designed with purpose, then certainly there must be a designer and a plan in place. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly released by Baker Books. You'll find it available through Bay Area bookstores as well as directly through Reasons to Believe at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. The book again called Improbable Planet by our guest tonight, best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, as always, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And again, the book available through reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Improbable Planet by Dr. Hugh Ross. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.